As we continue our series, Never Forsaken, this morning we're going to look at one of my favorite biblical characters, because he's just such an interesting life, um, ups and downs, and um, just a strange, beautifully strange man, and it's uh, John the Baptist, and his story has the highest of highs, and it ends in a very difficult, depressing way. <laughs> Notice these words here. The story of John is marked by, especially at the end of his life, disappointment and discouragement, frustration, a sense of being stuck, and not just a sense of it, the reality of being stuck, being sidelined while exciting things are happening all around you and you can't be a part of it, um, some doubt, and maybe some, uh, some bitterness. I want to start at the beginning of John's ministry, which we find in Luke chapter 3. So I'm going to read a good portion of this chapter, and I I just would invite you to follow along in your imaginations. Luke chapter 3, I want you to picture things as they're happening. Picture John. In the 15th year, verse 1, of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Traconitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. John is out in the wilderness And the word of God comes to him. This is following roughly 400 years of prophetic silence from God. God has not spoken since the days of Nehemiah, roughly. And after centuries of quietness, centuries of wondering where God is and where his voice is, the word of God came to John in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said therefore to the crowd that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Can you imagine if I said that to visitors when they they came in? You brood of vipers, who warned you? John's awesome. Seriously. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also came to him. And we, what shall we do? 
And he said to them, do not exhort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be content with your wages. Let me use a good American word that, that we'll understand what's happening. Revival. Revival's happening. The word of God comes to John out in the wilderness. And like every good and true revival that happens, how does it start? It starts with one thing, repentance. Revival always starts with repentance. The word of God comes to John out in the wilderness and he starts preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he goes on to call people snakes. I don't know about you, but I don't like being called a snake. Anyone in here like being called a snake? Brood of vipers who warned you to flee the wrath of God. And despite this difficult message, God's spirit is stirring in a powerful way. And there's three different sets of people. The crowd, so the general average day people, are saying, what, what must we do? And he says, share your tunic, share your food, share with those who have none. And then it goes a step further because not only just the average general people are being involved, but the tax collectors, the people who the average people hate because they're working for the Romans. They say, well, what what should we do? And he said, collect no more than you are authorized to do. And then hear this. Soldiers, who would the soldiers have been? Romans. Romans, the occupying force, the enemy of Israel, are saying to John, this guy who eats locusts for dinner, who came out of the wilderness smelling like the wilderness, they look at him and they say, what must we do? And so in John's ministry, as revival is breaking out, you have the normal Jewish people, the the average everyday people, people. You have, you have um, Jewish people who are considered traitors, real sinners, like tax collectors coming. And what's more, you even have Roman soldiers who are asking what they must, be, what they must do to receive this repentance of forgiveness. Verse 15, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. Can you imagine what that temptation would be like? For John? You ever thought about that? Revival's breaking out. And people are thinking perhaps John is the Messiah. Is the Christ. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. I'm going to skip down to verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized... And when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven and said, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Skipping back up to the verses I skipped in 18. 
So with many other exhortations, John preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by John for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all. He locked John in prison. John has an almost dreamlike prophetic ministry going on. He is the picture of Elijah. He's out in the wilderness, eating locusts, living in the wilderness, this, this very like rugged type prophetic figure. And the word of God breaks the silence and comes to John. And he knows, he knows what he's supposed to say. And he probably spent his life searching and listening and waiting because of the miraculous things that had happened with his dad. Do you remember when his dad went to serve as a priest and, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him and his name was Zechariah, which is an awesome name, um, which means the Lord remembers. The Lord remembers 400 years of silence and who does the angel appear to? A guy whose name is the Lord remembers. That's so cool. And, and so the angel of the Lord, Gabriel, says to Zechariah, you're going to have a son. But Zechariah doubted in his heart, so he was made mute, and he couldn't speak. And there was all these prophecies and these wonderful things that happened early in John's life. And now it's about 30 years later. And we don't know much about that time in between. But based on what we know of John, he was waiting and he was listening. Waiting and listening. Waiting And listening for the voice of God. Listening, waiting, and then, bam, God's word comes. It's time, John. You know what you're supposed to say. However that happened, however the Lord revealed that to him. And John comes and starts preaching this message of repentance. Now notice, in the ancient world, plagiarism wasn't quite the same as what we think of it today. Because Jesus is going to basically take John's message after John's done preaching it, and preach the same thing. John preaches that, that the normal people would share their food, share, share what they have, that tax collectors should, be, should stop taking money that's not theirs and turn their lives around, that soldiers should not use their power to dominate people. These are all things that Jesus preaches in the Sermon on the Mount and in other places. And all were in expectation, and there's movement, and there's excitement, And this is John's mountaintop moment. Now, who does John come in the spirit of from the Old Testament? Already mentioned his name. Elijah. Dave Willauer preached last week on on Elijah in the wilderness. And Elijah is famous for his showdown with Baal that took place on the mountaintop, right? So Elijah, this great... Many, many scholars have always traditionally thought of Elijah as the most powerful of the prophets. And he's up on the mountaintop and he has his showdown with Baal. And God's fire literally rains down from heaven. And the prophets of Baal are slaughtered and things are turning around. And then he comes down the mountain. And what happens? Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you tomorrow. You're dead. And Elijah not only physically comes down the mountain, he spiritually, metaphorically, comes down off the mountain. He was in this triumphant victory place, and he comes down to this low place where he says to God, it would be better if I were dead. 
It was like two days between that. I think prophets can be prone to extremes. And that's not a bad thing. That's who God made them to be. John, who ministers in the spirit of Elijah, having his showdown with the religious leaders and the idols of the day, and God's fire is breaking down from heaven. Jesus shows up, the Messiah, the Lamb of God, and John is able to fulfill what he was born to do. There he is, the Lamb of God. And then John is asked by Jesus to baptize him, and John doesn't know what to do at first. He's like, I can't do that. Jesus says, no, it's right. It's fitting for this to happen. And so John baptizes Jesus, and the heavens are parted, and the Spirit of God descends in the bodily form so people could see it of the dove, and it rested. And I I think it's Matthew makes the point of saying, and it stayed. The Spirit rested, and it stayed upon him, and then the voice of God thunders from the heaven. This is my son, my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. If that's not a mountaintop experience, I don't know what one is. And I can just imagine John hearing God's voice in that tangible way, seeing his spirit descend, seeing the Messiah, the one for whom John was born to prepare the way. People are repenting and being baptized. It's all going exactly like he hoped it would. Man, he must have been just riding high with God. And rightfully so. Rightfully so. This is a beautiful, amazing thing that God was doing. But Luke includes this short little paragraph. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by John for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all. He locked up John in prison. We'll pick up the story in Matthew 4. Chapter 4, verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way by the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I already said it, but where did that, where did that sermon come from? John. John is imprisoned. Jesus withdraws to, a, to a Naphtali, to a Galilee, to Capernaum. He withdraws. And then from that day on, Jesus began preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is is at hand. In Matthew 11, skipping forward in John's story, it says, When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went from there to preach, to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John, 
what you hear and what you see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That word blessed shows up a few times in Matthew. What are, what's that word most famous for in the book of Matthew? Blessed. The Beatitudes, right? Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart, they see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, they shall be called sons of God, and so on. That word blessed, we actually don't really have a good English word for what it means. The, the closest that we can get to in our current use of the language is, is blessing. Um, the word, a good way to put it, and it was so cool, I was reading this this week um, in a commentary. One of the best ways to explain what that word is, makarios, which is translated as blessing, one of the best ways to explain it is the concept of you're in a really good place. Like you're in a, you're in a good spot. You are aligned correctly. You are who you are meant to be. That's what that word kind of means. You're in a good place. You are aligned rightly with God. You are being who you are meant to be. So think about that, which is a little bit different than blessing because we tend to think of blessings materially. God blesses those. That's a very American concept of blessing. It's not a biblical concept. Biblical concept of blessing is God's presence. You're in a good spot. When this happens. So think about that with the Beatitudes. You're in a good spot. You're in a good place with God. When you have a pure heart. Why? Because you see him. You're in a really good place. Like you are aligned with God rightly. When you are a peacemaker. Why? Because they'll see that you're God's son. You should be called a son of God. Jesus says to John, the one who is not offended by me is in a really good spot and aligned with God. In our generation right now, and I'm speaking 40 and below, okay? And if you're older than that and you sense this applies to you, wonderful. I'm a, I love history. I love studying church history. I've taken multiple rounds of church history in seminary and in undergrad and on my own study. I love church history. I can't think of another time in church history, at least in the Western world, where doubt is considered a place to live instead of a place to walk through. Let me say that again. I don't, know of another time, I could be mistaken, but I don't know of another time, another generation, where doubt was thought of as a place to live and set your camp up, to pitch your tent, to build your house, versus a necessary place that you have to walk through. I better not see a hand raised. Who here has never experienced doubt. This doubt is an absolutely necessary and normal thing to walk through. 
even, even after you experience salvation and the, the beauty and the wonders of God, walking through doubt is a necessary part of our spiritual journey. But it is no place to live. And it is no place to build relationships or lay a foundation. It is a necessary part that you have to walk through. I've had so many wonderful things happen in my life where God has just made himself manifestly known through people, through experiences, through church, through miraculous things that have happened in my life so many times. There are still times with my degrees and my time spent as a pastor and miraculous things I've experienced. There are times where I'm like, are you even there? Do you even speak? Is this actually legitimate? There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, the scriptures encourage being honest and wrestling through those things. Think about the Psalms. Think about what David says. David, David, whose throne does Jesus sit on? David, right? How many times is he like, are you even there? Are you even going to speak? I love this psalm so much because I just, I just feel it in my bones. Psalm 28, to you, O Lord, I call my rock. Do not be deaf to me. For if you are silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Or a translation I like says it this way. If you are silent to me, God, I might as well give up and die. Surely you can relate to that. If God is silent, then you might as well give up and die because what hope do we have apart from God speaking, apart from God working? All that to say, that's a bit of a rabbit trail to say, doubt and and struggling and wrestling is a very normal thing that every person experiences from Billy Graham to (laughs) my children. It's, It's a normal part of our faith. However, hear this. Doubt is never meant to be a place where you build covenantal relationship with others or with Christ. It is never meant to be a place that you pitch your tent. My generation desires, in many ways, to pitch our tent in a place of doubt versus a place of faith. A lot of this has to do with the fact that we live post-enlightenment. We live um, after scientific awakenings that have happened. We, we, we live in a time where uh, science and faith have been pitted against one another and, and all sorts of things. There is no war against science and faith. There's, that doesn't exist. There's no such thing as a war between science and faith. God is the God of faith and he's the God of science. What it is to say, though, is we have to be so careful, especially those of you 40 and under, under, you have to be so careful because the temptation right now is to say that doubt is the most honest and best place and the, the best place to live your life. N.T. Wright, the New Testament scholar, has this, uh, I heard him say this recently, um, we live in an age where you can have the intelligence of an onion, but if you doubt things, if you doubt everything, you'll be considered smart. That's worth repeating, because it's true. We live in an age where you can have the intelligence of an onion, but if you choose to doubt everything, you'll be considered smart, because it's the spirit of the age. You will doubt, I doubt, the greatest prophet 
Jesus said the greatest who have ever lived doubts. It's very normal, and it's part of our walk. Do not live there. Do not pitch your tent there. That is sinking sand, my friends. So when you find yourself in a place of doubt, you fight with everything in you. You fight and you fight and you fight. You use other people. You use the scriptures. You yell at God if you need to. You beat on his chest. Guess what? He can take it. It's never hurt him before and it won't hurt him now. When you find yourself in a place of doubt, you do everything that you have to do to walk through that. It is so worth it. So when you find yourself wrestling with questions, is there a God? Can we trust his scriptures? Is this inerrant? Is it inspired? Is is church worth it? We've been hurt by church. We've been wounded by leaders and people. Is Is any of it worth it? When you find yourself in that place, do not be content. That is no place to live. Do not be content with that. There is no treasure to be found there. There is no pearl of great worth. You have to walk through it. You have to fight your way out of it. Be like Jacob up on the mountain with God. Refuse to let go. Refuse to let go of God in that place of wrestling and that place of struggle. I may have used this illustration before, but we think of wrestling with God as this heavy, oh, woe is me. I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death. I'm wrestling with God. Guess what I do as a dad every day when I come home? I wrestle with my kids. Because I love them. I pick them up and I throw them on the couch. <laughs> I pick them up and I throw them in the air. We, we have this phrase in my house where I say, and I don't know why, but I've, I've, one of those silly things, I've said it since my children were basically newborns. I'm, this is not an exaggeration. I say, I'm going to dominate you. <laughs> and Gra- Gracie, every single day, my daughter runs up in, to me and says, Daddy, dominate me. <laughs> <laughs> which, is, which is really funny. And I, we've used that word so many times that it's kind of lost its meaning. <laughs> it just means we're going to wrestle. We're going to have fun. So when my daughter asks me to dominate her, what she means is spend time with me, Dad. Spend time with me, Dad. Pick me up, Daddy. See me, Daddy. When you're in a place of doubt and you have questions and you're heavy and you're hurting, you say, now's the season to wrestle with God. God's like, all right, I've been waiting for this. It's a joy to wrestle with the ones you love. It is a joy to wrestle with the ones you love. And when God the Father looks at you, his child, he says, come on, bring it. I'm going to dominate you. It's good to be dominated by God. It is good to be dominated by God. John... He came off the mountain hard. And Elijah was up on that mountaintop. When Elijah came down, who was it that confronted him? It was Jezebel. This demonically oppressed woman. She looks at him and says, I'm going to kill you, Elijah. John, who operates in the spirit of Elijah, comes down off that mountain, that mountaintop experience in his ministry. And Jezebel says to him, I'm going to kill you, John. Her name's Herodias now. Same thing. She's got power. She's married to the king. She worships demons. She says to John, I'm going to kill you, John. And he comes down off the mountain. And he's hurting. 
Because outside, stuff is going on that he can't be a part of. And he's hearing things, and Jesus isn't doing what he expected him to do. The Romans are still there. There's no uprising. David's throne hasn't been reestablished. The kingdom hasn't been re-ushered into existence in the way that they thought it would. And he's stuck, and he's got questions, and there's no answers to these questions And Jesus is strange to him. Even him, Jesus is strange to. And so he says to his disciples, can you go ask him, are you the one? Or should I be looking for someone else? Because maybe all of that mountaintop experience, maybe it didn't actually happen like I thought it did. Maybe it wasn't really as good as I thought it was. Maybe I baptized the wrong person. normal questions for a person who's being persecuted and walking through the difficulties of life and in prison. This is a normal question. And Jesus doesn't really rebuke John. He encourages him. He's not angry at John. He says, you go and say to him, what's happening? What do you see? What do you hear? The blind can see. The lame can walk. Those who are unclean and cannot worship God are being made clean and being fit for worship. The dead are raised up to life. The poor have good news preached to them. And John, you are in a really, really good spot. You are aligned with God if you are not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? What what did you think you were going to see when you went out to see John? Did you think you were going to Hollister down the street? Did you think you were going to the Banana Republic? Did you think you were going to a a walkway where you're going to see models walking up and down? What, What did you expect to see when you went out? A reed shaken by the wind, someone who's weak and blown about? What then did you go to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. And the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Nothing much has changed since then. I I saw an article about Billy Graham where the article was complaining about him being um, 
like, <clears throat> oppressive towards women. Billy Graham was so far ahead of his day in his treatment of, of women, his treatment of, of African Americans, his treatment of... Um, <laughs> he, he was so far ahead of the culture. I, I just sense Jesus saying, we, I, what, we're going to lose no matter what, right? Like, well, however, however Jesus' presence shows up and speaks through people, whether it's through a prophet figure like John, who's like, I'm never going to eat anything but locusts. Or it shows up like Jesus, and he's like, let's party. Let's have a feast. However God's presence shows up, the reaction is the same. So often, a rejection of that. It continues today. And I can, oh, just as, as a lover of Jesus, I, I feel grief for that. I feel grief for that. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by the Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. Skipping ahead to verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's a reason why Matthew puts this passage connected to the passage of John being stuck in prison. There's a reason. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Those of you who are walking through doubt right now, come to Jesus. Those of you who have loved ones that are dying, come to Jesus. Those of you who are burdened and heavy, come to Jesus. He is not looking for people who have their act together. He is looking for people. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, friend, gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And then skipping ahead to the story of John being killed. At the time, Matthew 14, at the time Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus and he, and his, he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. So it's a kind of funny thing to say. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. Jezebel. And the king was sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. John's life, his ministry starts on the mountaintop and it ends in the prison, and he ends being beheaded and martyred for his ministry. And this should remind us of the famous passage in Hebrews 11, where the writer of Hebrews lists all the great people of the faith, Moses and David and, and Abraham and so on and so forth. 
And then he says at the end of that chapter, verse 39, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. John was promised that he would prepare the way for Christ. And he died. Think about this. Think about the bitterness of this for a second. John died probably within a year to a year and a half of the resurrected Christ. All that power and all that ministry that God gave him, the calling he put on his life, the naming of John. John is the one who gave Jesus the message that Jesus preached. John is the one who prepared the way. John is the one who baptized him. John gave him Peter as a disciple. Peter was John's disciple first. And Peter, or John the Baptist encouraged Peter to go follow Jesus. His life's mission was to hook Jesus up, to set him up for his thing. And he's watching and he dies not getting to see Jesus resurrected in his full glory and power. It's a difficult thing. That's a very difficult thing. The reason why I wanted to include this story in the Never Forsaken series is many of us have this same experience in life. Where we go from mountaintop to valley or where we don't think we get to experience the fulfillment of what God has promised us. Again, the writer of Hebrews says all of these, these great saints, Though they were commended for their faith, even though God said, well done to them, they did not receive what was promised for them. He goes on to say, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Apart from us, those saints cannot be made perfect. That's an interesting thought. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, the communion of the saints, right? We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses who are watching us and watching God's kingdom unfold in history. John, beheaded in the prison, joins that crowd of witnesses and he sees Christ cross the finish line. And welcomes him home to the Father. I think this is very encouraging. It needs to be said in the sense that there are so many of us who, see, who feel like we don't get the fulfillment of what God promised us. Or our life doesn't go like we hoped it would. In many ways, I'm young still. In many ways, my life hasn't gone how I hoped it would when I was younger. In many ways, it's been much better, much richer. In other ways, there's promises that I heard from God that I see no fulfillment for, right? We've all experienced that and, and um, continue to experience that. So what I want to just invite us to do is I want you, as I wrap up the teaching here, I want to actually invite you into a tough place where you join John in the prison where there's disappointment and there's struggle and there's wrestling. And I want you to hear God say to you, just like he said to John, despite what you see and don't see, despite being stuck, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
There is one person who was left. There is one person who was forsaken. There is one son of God who was abandoned by God. There is one man who prophetically ministered and God turned his face away from him. There is one person and one alone. And it was not John. And it is not you. And it is not me. Jesus spread out naked on the cross. Crucified and beaten and bruised. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the sky turns black as the full wrath of God's anger is poured out upon him. But for John, for you, for me, God's word stands true through the ages because of that sacrifice of Christ. So if you are in prison or if you have sick children or if your children aren't walking with the Lord and you're screaming out in the middle of the night, God, save my kids, wherever you're at, God's word remains true. I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. So I want you to personally receive that. I want you to receive that in your spirit this morning. And as you're walking through places of doubt, hear God say, I'm not leaving you nor forsaking you. When you're walking through those places of struggle, questioning what God's doing or if he's doing anything at all or if he's even there, keep going. Press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of you. Forget what lies behind. Press on. Press on. Run on. Run the race to finish the race. Run the race like an athlete who's planned it. Go for it. God has given you the strength through his spirit and through his presence and through his promise that he is always with you to run the race with faithfulness no matter where you find yourself today. God, we pray that we would receive this truth and sit in this place often of of struggle and doubt, but with you in it and wrestle with you and enjoy your presence. We pray this in your name. Amen.